We're going back to the beginning. The Byword started as a podcast featuring one Marvel and one DC fanboy. What better book to review then than 1996's DC vs. Marvel? The Byword starts now. Ladies and gentle nerds, welcome to episode 163 of the Nerd Byword Podcast. I'm Dave, I'm here with my buddy Chris, and this week we are reviewing the 1996 event comic DC vs. Marvel, pitting heroes from the two respective companies against each other in a battle for survival. But first, as always, it's time for... All right, Chris, what's new? Well, it feels like I've kind of carved out a new role for myself as like the strike reporter. But uh, SAG-AFTRA's national board is unanimously seeking permission uh, from the union members to strike against a number of video game makers uh, ahead of negotiations, which are set to resume later this month. Um, They are currently on strike from the Academy of Motion Pictures and all those companies or whatever. But now they are setting their sights on video games. Now, this does not mean that they are retroactively going on strike immediately. It's just making it a bargaining chip when they go to the table for those negotiations. SAG-AFTRA is looking for 11% retroactive wage increase for its video game performers, as well as a 4% increase in the contract's second and third years in order to offset inflation. Um, And then the other big thing is protection against AI, uh, something that we have talked about to a great extent that um, voice actors, screen actors are legitimately and understandably uh, concerned about. And and, uh, their uh, counterparts from the Academy of Motion Pictures and and, and what have you are are doing their best to uh, bring... Uh, kind of justification to those in, in using artificial intelligence to kind of take the place of these talented performers. So uh, it remains to be seen how negotiations are going to shake out, if anything, but we could very well be looking at yet another strike, Dave. And uh, not surprising, um, we've covered, you know, uh, stories out of the voice acting world for video games before, and uh, a lot of the stuff, you know, when, when stuff does leak out about pay and treatment and the like, it doesn't exactly look great for the video game industry. I think the video game industry as a whole is not very good at uh, treating its workers well. Uh, legendarily, you know, a lot of developers are stuck in crunch situations where they have to work 60, 70 hour weeks just to get a, a, a game out on target time. So there are a lot of issues in the video game world to begin with. Voice acting, though, is definitely one of those um, and so, I, you know, I, I'm definitely going to wholeheartedly support their efforts to to secure a better, you know, position for themselves. Um, I remember reading just like maybe a month or two ago, and I wished I could remember offhand what the game was. It was some fantasy game where the modern community was creating additional content, some of it rather not safe for work. And one mod had to be taken down because they used AI 
to feed lines from one of the voice actors in there and then basically generate artificial intelligence content where you know new voice lines were created saying some rather let's say spicy things and the original voice actor was not happy with that use of you know their voice and i think there has to be uh at the very least with AI, a certain acknowledgement of a right to your likeness and your voice. Um, and that that cannot be, um, you know, duplicated uh, in any way, shape or form without without your consent. Um, I think that that is that is at the very least one of the most basic things that needs to happen here. Um, it, that's a major problem and, and has already reared its head in video games. So I'm, I'm glad that they're trying to address these problems, Chris. Absolutely. And and not necessarily in the same vein, but act, perhaps an end result uh, is your news story for this week. Yeah, I mean, uh, the continued uh, hesitance of studios to actually sit down at the negotiating table uh, and really work with, you know, the writers and actors uh, of Hollywood is has led already to some MCU fare getting delayed. Um, Ironheart. Agatha, The Darkhold Diaries, and Echo have all been pushed back, although my understanding is that those shows are pretty much completed. So it seems to me like at at the very least with those shows, they're trying to create a little bit of a cushion for themselves by spreading out, um, uh, let's say, the the content that they do have in the can to deliver to people as these strikes uh, continue forth. Um, but the thing that hasn't really been discussed, and, and there's a lot of discussion about it because there's not been any official word yet, is, of course, uh, the thing that probably uh, fans of the Netflix um, Marvel shows are looking forward to the most, and that is Daredevil Born Again. And I think it's probably fair to say at this point, with so many um, MCU Disney Plus shows getting delayed into 2024, that we're probably not going to see Daredevil Born Again at the very earliest in 2025. And that completely dependent on the studios coming to some sort of agreement with the actors and writers. Um, My understanding as of last time I checked was that Daredevil was originally set to film um, between February and through Thanksgiving. And so when the strike started hitting, um, only three of the scheduled 10 months of filming had taken place. Now we're looking at a very big show you know daredevil born again was supposed to have a first season of 18 episodes which is massive by disney plus standards um so they don't have anywhere near in the can what they need and so you know we're gonna have to wait for a resolution to these this negotiation for sure uh and then they're gonna have probably another six or seven months of filming just to get caught up in post-production so although there's not been official word from from Disney on this situation, it is probably fair to say that Daredevil Born Again is pretty far in the back burner at this point as far as when fans can actually lay eyes on it. Um, so not, not official word, but if you kind of go ahead and just use some basic reasoning, it becomes very, very clear uh, that Daredevil Born Again has definitely been indefinitely delayed at this point, Chris. Yeah, and you laid it out exactly, um, you know, for one, I wholeheartedly can wait. Um, I think it's funny because so many people are complaining about an oversaturation of MCU content. Um, well, here's a double-edged sword because you're going to have to wait for some stuff. So, um, But it, I don't think we're going to see the the end anytime soon of this. It does not seem like these 
uh, production companies, these, these studios are willing to play ball at all. And so I think we're, I think we're going to be in for a long ride here. I, I think so as well. And, you know, we, we had talked previously um, about the fact that, you know, we, we can live with, with less Hollywood content because we still have our comics and our video games. <laughs> if we, if we lose the voice actors in the video games, we don't have those anymore. So we better cling to our comics tightly at this point. <laughs> and you know what? Honestly, the treatment of creators and comic books, they can go on strike too. Honestly, I would not be surprised to be honest with you. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's becoming a, a, a increasingly interesting situation. Alrighty, folks, there you have it. That's it for Nerd News. If you have any thoughts or opinions on the strikes and how those are affecting uh, the content coming your way um, and the studio's inability to uh, apparently negotiate in good faith, then uh, please go ahead and get on social media. You can find us at nerdbyword.com on most platforms and uh, let us know how you feel about these stories. Um, We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we are reviewing 1996's DC versus Marvel Comics, so stick around. Alrighty, folks, welcome back to, I guess, DC versus Marvel Month, uh, as Chris and I have decided to take on a monumental task by reviewing the four-part limited series DC versus Marvel, featuring a crossover between, yes, DC Comics and Marvel Comics characters, and then dive into the 12 uh, Amalgam Comics books, which spun out of this event and featured new heroes that were, I guess, merged versions of various heroes from DC and Marvel. It should definitely be quite a ride as we look back at a time when DC and Marvel actually were able to play nice with each other. So DC uh, versus Marvel, um, or Marvel versus DC, because they actually flopped the title uh, for issues number two and three, I believe, to Marvel versus DC, uh, was a comic book miniseries. It was an intercompany crossover between Marvel and DC Comics that was published between April and May of 1996. Um, Each company actually was responsible for two issues of uh, this series. Uh, It was written by Ron Mars and Peter David. Uh, and featured art by Dan Jurgens and Claudio Castellini. Um, and uh, the, the plot is absolutely bonkers. Uh, the team-ups, matchups are absolutely bonkers. There's so much to unpack here. So what we're going to do is uh, we're going to use our usual patented method for reviews in that we each pick three things we really liked and three things we didn't like so much, and then we will give it a final verdict. So Chris, we're going to go ahead and start off with you. What was the first thing you really liked? about DC versus Marvel or Marvel versus DC. <laughs> I love the the whole premise of these celestial eternal whatever they were the brothers is like these arbiters creators of universes um as as like one representing each and then becoming you know aware of each other's existence and then battling it out duking it out that was a fascinating concept really big celestial cosmic grand scale i thought that was really fun some of the other elements that kind of were offshoots of that didn't work as well for me but that entire premise as these two different universes being having a physical manifestation was kind of fascinating for me 
it was almost Kirby-esque in its execution, dare I say right. so. And I know you're not the biggest Kirby fan, but this was definitely uh, sort he of He just makes ugly faces, that's all. The rest <laughs> of it's good. <laughs> he he was definitely one of those, you know, gods and celestial beings kind of people. And I think it, it definitely um, lends a certain amount of gravitas uh, to this crossover that the stakes are so far beyond the... Um, the kenning, I guess you could say, of of the superheroes that we usually follow. Especially uh, with a large amount of street-level heroes. Yes. Yeah. I, I thought it was absolutely fascinating to go the route of like even having like the Spectre in the Living Tribunal being like, yes. oh crap, yes. this is so far even beyond us. Um, I thought that was absolutely a, a, a very cool way of showing the, the scale of what was happening here. Um and although it ultimately led to like this, you know, hero versus hero thing, which I know both of us are not huge fans of, um, it was a very, very cool, very, yeah, very Jack Kirby kind of way of setting up the story. I liked it a lot, too. Yeah, so I think that leads into something you teased earlier, but uh, I think is kind of uh, an offshoot of that in, in your first like. Yeah, to me, um, this is the absolute quintessential 1990s crossover story i think it is absolutely bonkers it is totally unhinged it feels like they took the craziest ideas they could think of and threw it against a wall to see what would stick and that i think is very much a staple of 90s storytelling um especially because during this time period there was a lot of financial trouble going on at marvel in particular but also at dc uh, and this crossover was in part a way of trying to energize the, the industry a little bit and, and raise interest in these characters. Um, so there is almost a little smell of desperation around all this, um, which a lot of 90s events had. I mean, if, if we look, for example, at like um, the death of Superman in 93 or um, Batman Nightfall or the the Clone Saga, you know, and this, this huge long form, uh, very radical storytelling um that sometimes worked and sometimes didn't as a way of trying to drum up interest in an industry that was really struggling i think this is the apex of that kind of storytelling in a lot of ways and so um i think the 90s in some ways get a really bad rap because some very unfortunate trends came out of the 90s but at the same time there was a a level of holy crap, I have no idea what's going to happen next that was taking place during that time period that I almost miss in, in more modern comics. That It was very unpredictable and, and very, very out there sometimes. Um, and so th there is something fun about revisiting that kind of madman storytelling, I guess. Like, we need to find a way to shock people, to awe people, to interest people, because our industry is going through financial difficulties. Um, that is not really present so much anymore today. That sort of anything-goes vibe. And I really, really like that about this miniseries. It does feel like anything goes and anything could happen. Um, and so I think it, it's kind of bonkers, 90s storytelling, but in the best possible way. I don't mean that derogatorily in any way, shape, or form. I just think it's a really cool, you know, anything goes kind of story, Chris. Yeah, and I think in a lot of a lot of times, and in, in this case being one of them, that desperation kind of breeds ingenuity and and kind of 
reinvention and ambitious storytelling. And I think it, I think it worked to a great degree here. And you can, you can tell that that desperation, um, you know, when the first you, you start off with Spider-Man, like you're going for the most popular character, perhaps in all of comic books. Um, albeit Ben Riley, <laughs> And then, you know, on the Marvel side, you know, you're, you're right there with the X-Men, but not just the X-Men as they were in the 90s at the time. You're leading with the characters specifically that were most popular from the animated series. So at first I was just like, oh, we're just, we're just doing this. And, but then I, I, I like how it pivoted into the very comics end of it so it started off with like the advertisements of here are the popular characters you had batman in there as well here are the popular characters that you know from those saturday morning cartoons that you're watching um but here's some uh, like you know deeper cuts to the comic creators as well yeah absolutely man they definitely that was the first thing i thought when i saw the x-men pop up it's like this is so leaning into the the animated series that was so popular in the 90s like you can you can just smell it on it you know um i was a smart i almost heard i I almost heard that (laughs) yeah 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 i almost feel like we could add a soundtrack with this comic absolutely yeah all right chris what was the second thing you really liked about the comic all right, so I'm saving the thing that we don't like uh, about stories like this for one of my dislikes, but one of the positive byproducts that was super fun were the cross-brand team-ups. I thought they were great. They were fantastic. You had you know, Captain America and Batman, who aren't necessarily like, you know, tit-for-tat, like the, the ones you would probably match up. I would probably pair Captain America with Superman as like, you know, but at the same time, you probably didn't want the two drastically similar characters uh, paired up together. But then you had, you know, Captain America and Batman kind of teaming up and trying to figure out, get to the bottom of this, using their detective skills, their tactical uh, expertise. Um, You had uh, Superman and Hulk teaming up against the Mole Man, which, you know, just say that out loud. (laughs) Um, In the Batcave, uh, so those were super fun while it lasted. It felt like, you know, back when I was a kid and I had my professional wrestlers uh, playing alongside my superhero action figures. So, it, it, you know, it was one of those crazy cross ups uh, that, you know, every every little kid was playing with with their own toys. You know, and, and there was a lot of really um, there was some interesting stuff happening in those team ups in some other levels as well. Um, for example, I don't know if you noticed this, but in several scenes in the book, they actually reference previous crossovers between DC and Marvel as being in continuity. For example, the Joker recognizes Spider-Man and even says, you must have changed your tailor. And in the scene where Silver Surfer and Green Lantern are fighting each other, they acknowledged that they have teamed up previously, and there was a there was before DC versus Marvel. There was a Green Lantern, um, a Green Lantern, uh, Silver Surfer crossover, right? And so the fact that they would go and say, "Hey, the you know these this is uh, in the same vein as previous crossovers we did. It's technically in the same continuity." Well, I thought was really cool because some of those crossovers. Um, I remember reading, I specifically remember the Green Lantern uh, Silver Surfer one from my childhood and thought it was really cool. The other thing that I really appreciated, actually, 
was what they did at the end of issue one um, with Clark Kent's article about what's going on. Because we got these glimpses of stories um, and, and team-ups and, and fights that would have been really, really interesting to see if only they could have elaborated on them. Like there's uh, the Green Lantern and the Green Goblin, right? We get a glimpse of that. We get Daredevil uh, kicking the Riddler in the face. Um, there is a, a really cool shot, actually, of uh, Batman taking on Venom. Um, so, or, or I think what personal favorite that I would have loved to seen was, was uh, what they did with Etrigan the Demon and uh, uh, Ghost Rider, right? So we have all these glimpses of of these um, these universes mixing, right? She Hulk and Supergirl was another one that I thought looked really cool. Uh, that, I wish we would have gotten a little bit more elaboration on some of those team ups. Um, because they they were really cool and and they gave us a glimpse of something that I think would have been fun to explore a little deeper, I guess. Um, but any time that the heroes weren't trying to punch each other and they were just like you know building relationships and 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 teaming up together, th- those moments were really precious in this miniseries. I think. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was super fun. Um, and and just. I think that's another one of uh, the things that we'll talk about in a minute is how truncated this felt. Um, it, it was almost just like an amuse-bouche uh, in, in yes. a sense. Like you, you wanted, you're, you were left wanting more. Oh yeah, absolutely. So what's your uh, second like of this, Dave? Uh, yeah, so I thought what they did with the merged universe between issue three and four, and we'll talk more about the merging and the various one shots that got, that came out of it in, in subsequent episodes. But I absolutely adored that as a curveball, that they stood there and said, OK, we're putting these two, two universes against each other. We We lay out the conceit that only one universe can survive, and then we're going to throw you a curveball and say, hey, we're going to go ahead and merge the two universes, but not just merge the two universes, but also merge individuals within those universes to create new yet familiar heroes. I thought that was a great curveball at the end of issue three. I remember reading this as a kid, and I was thinking, what the crap just happened? Um, I mean... They could have just called it a day and said, we're going to do a, you know, a four-part DC versus Marvel book. But man, they went all out with this merged universe idea. I thought that was fantastic. Um, and, I, and I can't wait to actually revisit some of them. They're various quality. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie. Some of them are really strong, I think, and some of them are, are not nearly as interesting or good. And there are some bad comics that came out of this, at least in my opinion. But the idea, the... The, the tenacity, the, the absolute guts to say, we're going to go ahead and merge characters from DC and Marvel to create new characters and see what happens. I adore that idea. It was a great cliffhanger at the end of issue three and a great concept, Chris. Yeah, and I think it's um, because I said, like I said, I'm, I'm left wanting so much more. I'm excited to dive into those because um, it's, it's just really like such an unexpected thing. Like you said, it's a curveball. It's an off-speed pitch. Like I was not expecting that. I was, you know, sitting here with the only one universe can survive, being prepared for the ultimate solution to that. Um, and then here's something completely different. So it's something I'm, I'm greatly looking forward to because uh, it, it, was, it was such a pleasant surprise. 
And, you know, I know I have a, a leg up on you on this because I read this actually back in the day when it came out. Um, but there's, there, you know, they, they play around with this quite a bit. If I remember correctly, there's 12 issues of of this merged universe that they released, 12 one-shots. And then I think there's like a second wave where they did like another six. And then they did a sequel miniseries about the character Access called All Access, where they, they do additional crossovers between DC and Marvel. Um, oh, so more on that this, later. Yeah. So the you could say that the uh, the crossover and the cooperation between the companies became almost formalized by by this crossover, right? Like they had done a few crossover one shots here and there, but here they were basically saying we co own this character, basically access, and we're going to use this character to continue to do crossovers. And I thought that was a really interesting attitude between the companies at the time, in contrast to where we ended up today, which is when they basically don't acknowledge each other. <laughs> All righty, Chris, that uh, brings us, I believe, to your uh, final like. Uh, you hinted at it, but I, uh, Ron Mars does his thing here. I think, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm not sure, I think. Peter David was listed as a consultant, probably because Mars was writing primarily DC at the time. Um, if I read the back pages correctly and, you know, just of what we've talked about and stuff that I previously knew, I knew he was writing Green Lantern, but his only writing credits listed on on one of the the end pages here were all DC titles. So um, I'm not sure how much credit to give to Peter David, but the script here um, is great in a lot of places. Some of the dialogue comes across as a little cringe-tastic and very 90s. But when he's cooking, um, like as you mentioned with the Clark's article that he wrote for the planet at the end of issue one, uh, the stuff with the brothers is just beautifully scripted. Like he starts off one issue with like the the dictionary definitions of amalgam and other stuff. But yeah, he 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 really does his thing. And, and what I've read of his Green Lantern, he does cosmic stuff so well. So... I, I was really a fan of a fan of his uh, to begin with, and even more so now. Yeah, to me, Mars kind of looms large in my fandom because it was, you know, <clears throat> it was his Green Lantern, um, Kyle Rayner, that really was my first introduction to Green Lantern, and I still have a big soft spot for that entire run and that character. Um, and I, you know, I've, I've previously professed that I have a big, you know, uh, soft spot for um, the Dark. Is it Dark Horse or Top Cow? Now I don't remember. Uh, Witchblade. Um, I have a big, big Witchblade fandom. Um, and to me, Mars is probably the guy that wrote Sarah Pizzini Witchblade the best. He, When he came onto the book, that run is probably one of my favorite runs on the character, period. I think he, he managed to define Green Lantern for a generation and then moved on and redefined Witchblade for a generation. The guy is uh, is up there as one of my faves. So anytime that he pops up, you know, doing his thing these days, I still check it out. And yeah, I think he he definitely he definitely is clicking uh, on all cylinders here. Yeah, I'll talk more about this later, but the the moment particularly. Um, some of the moments between the heroes uh, in his issues were really, really strong. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I like, I like what Morris did here. Listen, a bad white girl is like your catnip, dude. <laughs> I think a bad girl period is my catnip, dude. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we, we've tossed this around a little bit, but uh, bring us home with your final like Dave. Yeah. For me, it's, it's, it's all in the character interactions. Um, I thought it was fun to see 
uh, Clark Kent and and Ben Riley basically working together as journalists. You know, um, basically uh, Ben kind of taking the Jimmy Olsen spot. You know, and even his very ill-advised attempt to try to hit on Lois oh Lane when she's engaged God. to Clark Kent. That was so funny to me. That, okay, that's the one. That's the one where Mars needs a talking to. Okay, he literally just says. He literally says she wants me. <laughs> My favorite line in all in that whole exchange is when Lois says, "I'm engaged," and Clark to me. is standing behind him and just says, "To me." To me. Uh, and Ben is like, "Holy crap! You could squash me like a bug." Like it's so nice when people acknowledge that Clark Kent is just a huge dude, and everybody just ignores how huge he is. And Ben is like, "Dude, you could squash me like a bug." Yeah, <laughs> I love that exchange. Um, but I also kind of don't forget, the- don't forget, don't forget Jonah, uh, JJJ, and Perry White and Kingpin all being in this one little setting. That was great. That was great. I absolutely love that. Uh, the idea that that Jameson and Perry White would get along <laughs> or agree on something is kind of wild too. Um, I love the Jubilee Robin stuff, the sort of like almost star-crossed lovers thing that they did with those two. You know, instant chemistry. But they have to fight each other. So, I thought that was so nineties, very 90s. much so. But 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 kind of cute in a way. I really liked when he ma- uh, Tim managed to defeat her without even throwing a punch. And he said, "God, I never planned on punching you." You know, like that was. Oh no, was, no, was... no! I loved when they randomly just showed up in Venice in like one of the gondolas in like this lovers' lane, and they're like, "We're just gonna roll with it. We're in Venice now. We're cool." Um. But I think my favorite character interaction is is the whole Wonder Woman being worthy of, of Thor's hammer. And then she hands it to him at the end in mid-battle. And he's like, what just happened? You know, like, how did you just pick this up and, and hand it to me? I love the how casual that moment was, you know, like, she just like, here, here take your hammer. And he's like, what? Those kinds of, that, I think that's the lifeblood of the series. And I wish we could have gotten more of those. those. Those character interactions between characters that really don't normally have a chance to meet in this way um it was just fun i even enjoyed like the the joker and 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 ben raleigh spider-man and he's like what's a clown doing up on the roof in the middle of the rain and he's and the joker's like i was thinking about blowing it up to be honest with you (laughs) those kind of character interactions were so fun uh and i think that's really the strength of the series not so much the versus stuff I almost wish it would have been more DC and Marvel and not DC versus Marvel because the strength is never in the fights. And and I had some issues with the fights I'll talk about later in the dislikes. Um, but but the character interactions were really the, the key lifeblood of the series, I think. Yeah, the one that I was desperately wanting more of was Wonder Woman and Thor because you have that great moment. Um, and then, you know, in the epilogue where she's staying there of like, and it references her meeting gods and how that changes her perspective now. And I'm like, there's so much more meat left on that bone. Oh, so much meat. All right, Chris, this leads us to the dislikes. This ought to be fun. (laughs) What you got? Access. His name is Access. Yeah, everything about Access and the unhoused guy, like that was was one of the, the 90s tropes that I wish we could have left behind. Uh, with his cardboard box, with the duct tape, like that, that none of that worked for me. Uh, yep. Bye. <laughs> yeah, I think um, just for that, I think we need to have an epilogue episode where we, where we read all access because I remember 
in DC versus Marvel access as a character didn't work for me because he wasn't a character. He was a MacGuffin, you know? Um, but I remember when they tried to follow this up and it was Ron Mars on his own coming back and, and riding all access. If I remember right. Um, that four issue series did a lot to kind of solidify him as a character, as a person. And, Sounds like and a Hollywood him... tabloid show. I can't and made serious. Yeah, exactly. But it made him infinitely more, more interesting. Um, is, is the name silly? Absolutely. But I think I probably have a bigger soft spot um, for him because I remember him uh, uh, being further developed. I know he also pops up in one of the Amalgam issues, Dr. Strange Fate, um, where he kind of becomes more interesting. Um, and then that All Access series I remember liking as a kid and, and finding him to be uh, a much more interesting character than just a MacGuffin. But yeah, he doesn't go very far here. Just He's he's just a MacGuffin here and, and not a real character. But I'm not surprised because, you know, as we've talked previously, it's a short series and there's a lot that they crammed into four issues here. Oh, good. There's another, there's more with Doctor Strange and Doctor Fate because that was one I'm like, okay, you can't just like flash that and then not do anything with it. No, there's a whole issue. It's still, it was, good. if I remember right, it was the last amalgam issue uh, and it led directly into DC versus Marvel issue four. Uh, all the amalgam stuff takes place between issue three and four. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, Dave, I'm excited to get into your first dislike because this is what happens when you let the masses vote on stuff. Yeah, so basically, if I remember correct, not every fight was voted on. The real big ones um, were not voted on. <clears throat> but there was like a, the, the, the undercard, I guess, the fights that only got like two pages uh, were voted on by fans. And you get a very interesting glimpse into popularity of characters in the 90s versus today. Um and you get a lot of um, a lot of illogical things. I remember even as a kid, there was a lot of playground discussion about that was a ridiculous fight. There is no way that this would have went this way. You know, I think the most satisfying of the fights is probably Superman versus Hulk. I think there's a real acknowledgement between the two that they, you know, they're 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 both kind of the strongest there is for their universe. And and Superman literally has to like drop a mountain on the Hulk just to slow him down at one point. <laughs> I, I I felt like that fight was one of the more satisfying ones. Um, and I know you and I know you love Storm, and I understand that. But I think I think they really punked Wonder Woman in that fight. Storm being probably the much more popular character at the time, in part because of the animated series. But she literally shot two bolts of lightning at Wonder Woman, and she was done. And that was, and I was like, this is Wonder Woman, you know, like she can go toe to toe with Superman and you struck her with two bolts of lightning and she's a goner. That one, that one, I think, while I agree with the end result of it, it was unsatisfying the way, especially how we've built out the mythos of Storm since then. I, it would be a much more satisfying storyline now. I, I will, I will agree with that. You know, Storm has gone through big ev- evolution since the 90s rather than just being, you know, quote unquote the weather queen you know um but the 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 power level in that particular match at the time for the 90s seemed very mismatched um and i think something similar happened um and again it's x-men related i'm sorry man but wolverine versus lobo um you know lobo as a character is so far overpowered and and so over the top in his own books now we're talking again about a character that's gone toe to toe with Superman and beat the snot out of him. And so as much as I love Wolverine, <laughs> seeing him, you know, t- 
take out Lobo in in like ten seconds behind the bar, and then and then take a drag of a cigar was just an absolute bizarre moment. But it it speaks, I think, to the fact that a lot of these fights were not were not written to be logical as far as fighting ability or power level of the individual characters, but rather as fan service because they allowed people to vote on them and. Have we learned nothing from the death of Jason Todd? Must we allow fans to vote on story results, really? I I think oftentimes it probably would be better in the long run to let the writers cook and do their thing, you know, rather than trying to have major decisions made by fans. I think there would have been more satisfying and logical results to some of these fights I think it still would have shaken up as kind of a, a, a tie with a tiebreaker at the end because that's what they were going for. You want to build the suspense and everything. But I think we would have had probably a little bit more internal logic um, rather than, well, the people voted and this is how it's supposed to end, so we must make it work somehow. And we only have two pages to make it work. And and I saw the fights were unsatisfying because of that sometimes and the results were sometimes questionable, I guess. Yeah, I... I the fans should never vote on anything. <laughs> never. Nope, not once. Uh because this I'm saying this as an X-Men fan who has had lackluster, unsurprising but lackluster and dumb decisions with the X-Men vote over the past 3 years and hopefully with the fall of Krakoa it's done forevermore because you just have what, what when you open it up to like that you have people who aren't even reading the books. You have no idea how these characters have developed. You have no idea who these new characters are. You go with the old days. You go with the nostalgia. That's why you have Polaris winning. That's why you have Firestar winning because she was in some random freaking cartoon with Spider-Man back in the day. And that's why you have Juggernaut winning the X-Men vote because nostalgia wins every time. But we're not going to let your boy Wally West uh, escape this stray because that was the worst one of them all. And I am... I am far from a Quicksilver fan. I think he's big lame, but like him having to like rescue these people and making it look like whatever, that was a lame one. Um, also speedsters just suck. Well, uh, some do. I'm, I'm a big Wally West fan and I might still convert you eventually. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's fair to say that fan voting is just not a good move. Um, there's a reason that we hire writers, right? <laughs> instead of uh, instead of letting the fans decide what it is they want. Um, but yeah, I, I think that was probably part of the problem. Uh, it was it was an interesting concept, I think, but it it kind of failed in certain places in execution for sure. All right, Chris, what was your first dis, uh, second dislike of uh, DC versus Marvel? The organization of the panels was disorienting at times. Um, it, it made it hard to like follow where I was supposed to be at, and I had to reread certain pages. So um, I guess a minor nitpick, but the uh, the panels were just kind of all over the place sometimes. Yeah, and and that again, I think feels like very much a '90s thing, you know, like extreme paneling. Um, so because I read uh, so many '90s comics in the '90s. Um, I, I kind of find myself falling easily back into following that kind of structure. But I will admit that I think the way pages are organized these days and more modern comics are, are infinitely more easy to follow. I think that they've uh, they've learned their lesson at the very least from from some of the more confusing layouts that we got back then. 
All right, Dave, I'm really interested to tap into your next dislike. Yeah, so I remember, um, God, I think it was reading an interview, may have been Ron Mars, may have been Peter David, may have been one of the editors. I don't remember. It's been it's been a while. But I remember when, when they were in the planning stages of this, there was a lot of internal discussion at both DC and Marvel, whether they wanted to make this series basically with classic versions of their characters or whether they wanted to uh, make it an incontinuity tale. In other words, it had to be reflective of the continuity at each company at the time. And Mars, I believe, if I remember correctly, was a big advocate, at least that's what I read online, of using the classic versions of the characters to make it a timeless tale rather than trying to mar it with current continuity. And so I think that would have probably been the better call here because some of the oddest, most difficult to explain, and even cringiest stuff that pops up in this book is because it is marred in 90s continuity. Uh, 90s continuity means you get... um, Aquaman that's missing a hand and has a hook for a hand, right? Um, which is not the classic incarnation of the character, although I will freely admit I have a very big weak spot for this version of Aquaman. <laughs> I, I like him a lot, probably because he was featured in uh, Morrison's JLA. Um, but then you also get the Ben Riley of it all. Um, and I'm a big I'm a big Ben Riley fan. I'm a big I'm a big fan of even that Spider-Man suit, I cannot lie. Um, I think that design rocks. But it is difficult when you are trying to market this book to DC fans to say, well, here's Spider-Man, but it's not Peter Parker. It's Ben Riley. But they even but did then a they weird dro- thing. They did a weird thing yes. where they're like, my work name is Peter Parker. Yeah. So he, he they tried to like sneak it in that he could be called Peter for the rest of the book just to try to weasel your way away from that continuity a little bit. You know, have your cake and eat it too. And And let's not forget, most of all, Slut Thor is definitely a choice. Dominatrix of a, of a Thor design. is a vibe. Yes. Holy smokes, was that a the choice? body shop Thor? I'm. A, I don't even. I don't even know what to say about that. Daddy story. Thor. <laughs> but whoever, whoever, whoever designed that was hammered. If you get my meaning. So <laughs> hey. Um, so there, there are things happening. I think in DC versus Marvel that I think would have been solved um, and would have made the story more timeless and even easier to revisit. And I think it's still a good read today, but would made it easier to revisit if they would have just said, you know, this is an out of continuity tale. We're using the classic versions of the characters. I mean, I totally will defend Superman with long hair any day of the week, but the average Marvel fan that wasn't really reading DC, picking up a book and seeing, you know, long haired Superman probably went, what in the world happened to his hair? You know? So all of these little continuity nods, I don't think were necessary for the story. And in some places probably was extremely distracting to people who were not versed in both companies continuity at the time. Yeah, I could see an argument for for taking both routes, but um, because like if you go the classic route and then you gain new readership and they try to read the current continuity stuff, it could pro- it would probably be so jarring. But if you, I guess if you're just upfront with it, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was definitely a moment in time, and maybe going with the current continuity kind of just adds to the 
the shtick of it all. So I, I can see both ways. Yeah, I mean, you, I, I'll tell you what's hilarious about Spider-Man in particular, right? So by the time we hit All Access, which came out, I think, a year later or something, the sequel to DC versus Marvel, the first issue features another crossover between Superman and Spider-Man. And the Spider-Man in that book is Peter Parker. And the only way that they can acknowledge it is to basically have him say uh, that he changed suits. Continuity basically messed up the whole thing that these people kind of knew each other uh, because now you have a different person under the mask. And he's just like, yeah, I'm wearing I'm wearing a different suit and just moving on from it, never even really acknowledging that there was some kind of current con- continuity, current continuity shenanigans going on. So honestly, that's how I feel we should should treat Ben Riley in most cases. But oh, come at me, bro. <laughs> I love Ben Riley. Dude was cool. You weren't there. You didn't live it like I did. I'm, I'm starting that. to sound like I'm, I'm starting to sound like Bane in The Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> right? I, w- I was raised in the '90s on comic books. You came to them later, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Not you, gatekeeping comic. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chris. We have one more dislike, I believe. Uh, it's. Tale as old as time, the worst tro- uh, trope in all of pop culture, not just comics. It's hero versus hero. Like, uh, maybe I'm too much of a moralist, but I feel like heroes should be teaming up and not fighting each other. Like, even back in the old days of Marvel Team Up, where they would, you'd see Spider Man and Iceman fight because of a misunderstanding. And if you, like, spend 30 seconds, two panels, speaking you understand that they're both heroes so i'm just exhausted by it's it's the the current social media trend not current it's an ageless one of who would win in a fight Uh, it's so dumb i'm so tired of it like just let heroes be heroes and stop trying to fight them against each other see uh, i said this earlier but yeah you and i agree on this one very strongly i'm not a big fan of the hero versus hero trope either um, I'm much more interested in team ups and trying to build friendships, or even having conflict about methodology. But not two two heroes trying to you know beat the snot out of each other. I find that to be the the lowest form on the hierarchy of superhero crossovers is when they start beating the snot out of each other. It's just so uninteresting. Uh, I'm not interested in who would win in a fight. I'm interested in who how they would interact with each other. You know, would they be friends? Would they would they not get along? Would they bicker? You know, that those character. Uh, interactions are much more interesting to me um, than than people trying to beat the snot out of each other. Uh, Dave, uh, we've we've hinted at it quite a bit, but your final dislike of this series? Yeah, it's too short. I mean, I think that's probably the biggest problem of this book. You had a lot of these fights taken two pages, and they didn't have room to breathe or develop or even ebb and flow in any way, shape, or form. Um, and because of that, I think a lot of the fights fall flat. Now, when you know that they took a break between issue three and four and then put out 12 one shots, um, it makes a little bit more sense. But I almost feel like, you know, 10 one shots and, and two more issues on the main miniseries might have been more advantageous just to give some of these fights a little bit of room to breathe. I think we could have had a little bit more interesting use of their powers. Um, you, you pointed at the, uh, the speedster fight. You know, there's so many things that the Flash does with speed that is so interesting, you know, uh, vibrating through through buildings and, and all that stuff. They, they could have had so much fun with a fight like that or even, um, you know, kind of kind of have, you know, Quicksilver pick up a new trick from from the Flash or something and, and play around with, you know, 
imitation or something. There would have been so many interesting ways to take that fight to spice it up. But when you have only two pages, it's just not enough. So the length of the series at four issues was it was too short for the ambition of the project, Chris. I thought I thought the most egregious one, even more so than the Flash and Quicksilver, was uh, Silver Surfer and and Green Lantern. Like that's Mars's baby. Like why is that? a couple of panels, not even pages. It was, it felt so abbreviated. And uh, I think at, at the very least, two more issues would have been just perfectly fine. Uh, maybe I'll change my mind when I read these one shots and stuff, but overall, yeah, that's probably my biggest criticism. And not to go too far off topic, but I just want to say that if I ever get the chance, uh, as unlikely as it is um, to write Spider-Man, you do know that I'm totally doing a 12-issue storyline that is a, a Spider-Man and his amazing friends where he's teaming up with Firestar and Iceman. I just want you to know this. I'm br- I'm bringing it back. That is first on my list if I get the chance, just so you know. <laughs> I have warned you against the perils of nostalgia for all these years. Have I, le- have I taught you nothing? I wanted to see it done right, and I think I could do it right. <laughs> all right chris what's your final verdict on dc versus marvel if you had to give it a grade what would you give it just for the sheer fun of it all and it brought me back to like i said playing with my action figures just by the sheer fun of this series i'm i'm going with a b and i reserve the right to change my judgment after we get through these one shots um i thought i thought it was really a whole lot of fun see i totally agree i, I was thinking like a b plus like i really I was surprised how well it held up, um, you know, considering I, I read it in the 90s and I remember liking it at the time, but, you know, rose colored glasses and I was a kid and everything. It's kind of hard to uh, how hard to be sure that the things you liked as a kid actually hold up. But I thought in this particular case, despite its flaws, you're right. There was a lot of fun to be had here. And it's it's definitely it's definitely a BB plus kind of book, I think. And And one final thing, I know that a lot of people say this could never happen nowadays, but in I, I'm going to say never say never because like you look at the current state of the strikes and everything that's going on, you have WB stripping things for parts. You have Disney looking at possibly doing the same thing with company with their subsidiaries like ESPN. You never know. I mean, as it stands right now, Probably not, but we also said that we we were also writing off the X-Men and the Fantastic Four just a couple of years ago, and now look how things have changed so dramatically. So I'm, I'm holding out hope that we could do this again. And I will go so far as to say that, and this is something to revisit, I think, when we talk about Amalgam, but there's been so many new characters introduced and so many um, changes at both companies. I'm even interested just to revisit the merging of characters. Like, who in the world would you merge, for example, Miss Marvel for over at DC? Or who would you try to merge Blue Beetle with from D, uh, from Marvel? Like, those sorts of things, I think, still have a, a relevance. And I think even revisiting that concept, not just a versus concept or a crossover concept, but even the, the amalgam concept, I think would be super interesting given the the, the state of both companies. The answer you're looking for is Jaime and Miles. Jaime and Miles would be such a cool merge, man. Yeah. The you blue think the, spider. The, design, the, the spider costume, beetle. The costume design alone would melt your face off. Oh my god. That is that is a, such a great idea. <laughs> like I would love to see that. 
but there are so many cool things that have happened in the meantime. I would love to see like who who do you merge Cassandra Kane with? You know, Batgirl from from DC. Like who who do you merge her with over at the Marvel side? Like there's so many White cool Tiger. discussions here. White that Tiger who desperately who desperately needs more screen time, page time. I'm still I'm still I'm still writing angry letters to Marvel editorial as to why Ava Ayala or any iteration of that character is not in the pages right now. It's giving, it's giving Latino, it's giving Latino phobia. It's giving Latino phobia. Yeah. It's, it's just, there's just some cool stuff. So revisiting this concept would be in modern times would be super interesting. Alrighty, folks, there you have it. Have you read DC versus Marvel lately? Maybe you should revisit it. And if you do, we'd love to hear what you think of this series. You can find us on social media at Nerd by Word and individually at that Nerd Dave and at that Nerd Chris. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Let's take a break. And when we come back, it's time for Nerd Commendations. So stick around. We're back, folks, and it's time to talk about what's good in this week's So, Chris, what's good? Game Pass. <laughs> Stop me if you've heard this before. Game Pass is just the best. It's my favorite thing of all forms of entertainment. Any medium. It's the best. Uh, more specifically, Age of Empires 4, one of my all-time favorite franchises, uh, the ultimate edition of Age of Empires I- I've recommended before, um, but we've got a new one, Age of Empires 4, real-time historical strategy game uh, developed by Relic Entertainment with uh, World's Edge, public by Xbox Game Studios. Um this one like really changes the game pun fully intended like this is like it's like taking a history class in video game form so like you start off with the the tutorial uh the rise of a king it's it basically takes you through like the basic mechanics of the game including the updated mechanics um and and tells you of um you know, the Norman invasion uh, of, of William the Conqueror tell, it takes you through that story, like the, the history of Normandy. Then you go straight into the Norman invasion, the conquest of England and subsequent, you know, conflicts. And all throughout this, they have these gorgeous cinematics that shows you like modern day Normandy with these like almost like ghostly superimposed um, like troops marching through where these battles took place. And, uh, there's so much you unlock bonus content where it, it shows you like historical stuff and they show you this place in France where they're building a medieval castle only using those medieval methods of like stone cutting and everything. It's like a history nerds, like greatest dream come to video game form. Um, there's so much stuff that I haven't even tapped into yet. I'm I'm still with the Normans um, and, and all the infighting that took place there. Uh, there's also the Chinese, the Mongols, the Delhi Sultanate, the French, the Abbasid uh, dynasty, the Rus, Holy Roman Empire. I haven't even got into that stuff yet, but like, this is, this is a dream come true for me. Now this was released simultaneously with a game called Humankind, which is basically Dave, uh, Sid Meier's civilization under another moniker. Um, so uh, understandably, as soon as I downloaded that, I was in way over my skis. Uh, much 
much to be desired with the the tutorial. I had no idea what I was doing. The whole turn based thing is has me completely lost. But this one is is right there. So, but I mean, like if, for you, someone who loves Civilization, I would give Humankind a look because um, it's 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 right up there. Like there's some fun aspects of that, and maybe this summer or winter break, I have more time to dedicate to it. Um, but yeah, it, we're eating good at Game Pass because Starfield is right around the corner too, as of the as of the time of recording. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, so I think I'm definitely gonna have to check this out. In fact, I saw it being added to Game Pass and I installed it. Um, I've, I've mentioned this before, but for the mo- most part, I'm actually not playing directly on my Xbox these days. I predominantly stream my Xbox uh, to my Steam Deck. Um, so it's, you know, I'm a little more mobile because of the whole like raising a toddler thing right now, sitting actually in front of the TV and doing anything is is unlikely most of the time. So um, having, you know, everything that's on my Xbox kind of in, in my pocket, so to speak, on the go has kind of been the key. But I installed it because I'm very, very curious to play it. You're right. I'm a big strategy guy and I'm a big history guy. Um, Civilization is by far one of my favorite series ever. So Although Humankind sounds interesting, I think I, I'm going to give uh, Age of Empires a, a kind of a, a twirl first. It sounds really interesting the way you describe it, Chris. Yeah, here's a cool note I found on the Wikipedia entry of it. The game's voiceovers were recorded using historical pronunciation of each language. So, I mean, like, as a history nerd, as a language nerd, that's such a chef's kiss for me. Um, now, that's cool. Yeah. So speaking of video games, let's get in these commendations in before they go on strike. <laughs> so um, I uh, have mentioned uh, in a previous episode that I'm playing a lot of older stuff uh, right now, particularly um, stuff that I own, but I am playing it through uh, emulation via my Steam Deck um, because I'm having a lot of fun with, you know, all, you know, all this, the screen and the controls and all the control I have over what I do on the system. And so right now, I am uh, replaying an N64 game on my Steam Deck, uh, The Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask. And I'm kind of on a Zelda playthrough right now, kind of playing a whole bunch of old Zelda games. And it strikes me how important I think it is for people today to play this game uh, if they have not. I know that Zelda has come a long way and changed a lot over the years, but there is something deeply special about Majora's Mask as a game. It um, came out almost two years after the release of uh, Ocarina of Time, and it was sort of an attempt to get more mileage out of the engine that they had to build sort of almost from scratch for Ocarina of Time and making this transition for Zelda from 2D to 3D. And so the game was developed in like a year, um, which is absolutely bonkers. And so in order to make that short development cycle work and in order to... Um, you know, make the hardware work for themselves. They decided on some incredibly novel concepts here that have not been revisited by Zelda since. Uh, the first is that the entire game takes place in a three-day cycle. So uh, the entirety of the game is on a three-day rotation, Groundhog Day style. And at the end of the three days, the moon crashes into uh Termina, the land where the game takes place and everybody dies. So you have to reset back using um, the Song of Time to the beginning of that cycle. What that allowed the developers to do was to really create a game that is less about breadth and more about depth. Um, So every NPC 
uh, in the game has a schedule that they follow. So that's a, that's a whole lot of programming going on there. And the game is incredibly rich with side quests. Um, so, uh, you know, a whole bunch of different NPCs have different things that they're trying to do and you can jump in and you can, you can help them, but you have to familiarize yourself with their schedule and when they're going to be in certain places or doing certain things so you can intervene in their stories. And, and that is an absolutely fascinating thing. It's an incredibly deep experience to get to know all these characters and their schedules and their wants and what they're trying to achieve and then how those various stories intersect. It's it's a level of complexity that is fascinating for this time period in Zelda's development, I think. And still, I think this game features some of the richest and most rewarding and interesting side quests and side stories in all of Zelda. They also have a concept in here of masks as transformation, so you can transform into uh, various other races, basically, by putting on a mask. You can become a Goron, uh, which is a very much sort of a heavy hitter kind of character. You can become a Zora for water traversal, and a Deku Scrub, which is, you know, you would not think a Deku Scrub would be an interesting character to play as, but they really make it work in here, including using flowers as a way of catapulting yourself into the air and flying. Um, there's a lot of stuff here, um, but I think the thing that makes Majora's Mask probably the most unique is the tone of the game it is very you know we throw away terms like dark a lot around a lot and i don't think this game is dark but i think it is a deeply melancholy game you know the, the moon is crashing into the earth and the characters all are very aware that this is happening and that the end of the world is approaching and so there's a melancholy that that kind of just is 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 kind of absorbed by every aspect of the game. Um, it is a tone and a feeling of playing this game that is unique to any Zelda game that I have played. And yes, I have played them all at some point or another. Um, it is such a unique experience. And so, if anybody enjoys something like Tears of the Kingdom or Breath of the Wild, I think it is incredibly rewarding to go back to some of the older games. And I think at the top of this list is Majora's Mask. It's an N64 original release. It was remade for the 3DS. Um, I'm wanting to say that they've put Majora's Mask on the current um, online service uh, for uh, Nintendo, so you can play it on the Switch. Um, but it is a totally rewarding game to go back to, Chris. And it's, it's it comes highly recommended. Yeah, I think my biggest thing on my to-do list is to get a switch and just do a zelda playthrough uh it's the one of the few things that i have kind of missed out on the only game that i've played regularly was breath of the wild i mean like that's a heck of a start and you know like a hard measuring stick but oh i take that back link's awakening i had the remake of link's awakening that was pretty fun but yeah i think it's something that i desperately want to do and it's something i plan to do because everything that i've heard about even every Zelda game has some kind of redeemable quality at the very least. And it's something that maybe it's going to be like one of my bucket list things. Yeah. I mean, just stay away from Philips CDI games, but other than that, you're in, you're in good <laughs> shape. <laughs> All righty, folks, there you have it. That's it for another episode of the nerd by word podcast. Uh, Thank you for sticking around. If you uh, like what you just heard, get on your favorite podcasting platform, give us a rating, a review and uh, you know, subscribe. So you never miss another episode. Uh, you can find us on all major podcasting platforms and our very own website, nerdbyword.com. Uh, also, uh, just to get you a little bit excited, uh, you might have noticed that uh, 
the weather is changing and the leaves are turning, which means we are getting closer to October. And October means uh, it's almost time again for Nerd Nightmare. Uh, and the way the schedule looks, we will be uh, introducing Chris to five more horror movies this year. And uh, we'll have to see if he can survive the experience. So there's uh, exciting stuff on the horizon. Yeah, and for Dave's nerd nightmare, we just made uh, Kamala Khan a mutant. So uh, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, follow us uh, follow us across all social media platforms at Nerd by Word. If you have an idea for an episode, we would love to hear it. Uh, shoot us an email at nerdbyword at gmail And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd by Word is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.